This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. Our guest is Ted Lanzaro. Thanks for being on the show, Ted. Thank you, Whitney, for having me. I really appreciate it. I know a lot of investors that are listening and are wondering, you know, how do we do this? What does that mean? Is this something I should do? You know, this 1031 lingo that we hear all the time, right? So, you know, let's get started as far as, you know, maybe you give us just some brief background of what this is and, and then let's dive into some details. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. I mean, it really is one of the available strategies when you sell an investment property. It's one of the available strategies to defer the capital gains on the sale of the property. It's probably, in my mind, the most important wealth building strategy in real estate investing. And here's why. Let me give you an example. So I had a client. He was a plumber. Okay. And as a plumber, he would go out and he would do his business. But he also started picking up small residential units, you know, a two-family here, a four-family there, you know, a small apartment building. And over a period of about eight years, he built up a portfolio of about 150 units, right, that he was running and managing locally. Now, this was in South Florida, and this was at a time when the market had be- was beginning to rise. The prices were starting to go up. And so what he did was he actually sold his entire portfolio to another investor. And he would have had about a million-dollar capital gain on the sale of all of those properties. And so what he did was he decided, well, I'm going to do a 1031 exchange. And he went and he bought a shopping center on the main road in Boca Raton, Florida, where I lived. And used that shopping center as his replacement property. So he never paid tax on the million dollars. He just did this 1031 exchange and bought a replacement property for actually more than what he sold the whole portfolio for. Okay. So now over the next year, year and a half, he's fixing up this shopping center and he's putting new tenants into it. Right. And the market's continuing to rise at this point also. So at one point when he's complete, he's got it fully rented, he gets an offer for it, which is $2 million more than they paid for it. Okay. So now he's got basically a $3 million capital gain. And so he's like, well, what do I do now? I'm going to do another 1031 exchange. And so he took the proceeds from the, from the shopping center and he ended up investing them passively into six auto zone buildings in Texas, which cost him a little bit more than what he had sold his shopping center for. But now he's completely passive. It's a triple net lease. So auto zones paying all the expenses on the buildings. He has a management company who basically collects the rent writes the mortgage check and sends him the balance. And at that point, he's making about $40,000 a month, totally passive, and now he's retired, right? And so he's never paid. He's, had, he's, he's up now like $3 million in capital gains and hasn't paid a cent in capital gains tax because he's been using the 1031 exchange to defer these capital gains. So you can see how that's like over the course of about five years, his net worth went up by three or $4 million 
but he never paid a dime in taxes. And that's why, why I say it's a, it's a very important wealth building strategy. Wow. Do you, th- I was going to ask you about how long that took, but you said about five years and that's about five very years. impressive. Do you think that was the timing of the market of when he got in? Or do you think that, you know, most people could do that in, you know, say four to six years? Well, I think a lot of it had to do with the timing of the market, right? You know, so it's a great strategy when you're picking up things at the bottom and then selling them as the market rises. Okay. Now, did he pay a premium for the properties he bought in Texas, you know, at the end of the auto zones? Yeah, because he was at the height of the market at that point, but he was also deferring gain and he knew he was getting into a kind of a low return kind of scenario, but he had already deferred all of this gain. So, and it was triple net, it was easy, it was passive. So he didn't have to do anything else but collect his money every month. Wow. Five years of retirement right there. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, what are some, I guess, some basic rules, some basic things we need to understand if we're looking at, you know, this same scenario or being able to do a 1031, you know, from one deal to the next and growing our portfolio that way? Okay. So the way it works is that when you sell a property, all of the proceeds of that property go sort of into escrow, what it's called a qualified intermediary, somebody who facilitates 1031 exchanges. At that point, you have 45 days to identify properties. You can either identify up to three properties of any market value, or you can identify more than three properties, but they can't be more than double what the value of the property you're selling is. At that point, after you've done your identification, you then have a total of 180 days to close on those one or more of those properties. From a practical and investor standpoint, right, you don't start looking for the properties, you know, the day of the closing of the property you're selling. I mean, you know you're selling a property. There's typically, but it's from the time you sell the contract until the time the buyer gets through their due diligence, right? There's, you know, there might be three months there. There's, you know, nine days. So you should be looking at a property, you know, that whole time, right? So that you're actually adding to the clock by looking for replacement properties before the 45-day window ever even starts, which is the day you close on the sale. So what could people be doing like now where the market's a little little tighter or whatever, right? Let's say I have a property that I might be willing to exchange, or let's say I come across a great property right now, right? So I know that I can put my other property on the market and probably sell pretty fast in this market. There's a huge demand for rental properties right now. So let's say I find a property that I know has a better rate of return than something I currently own, right? Well, now I can actually just say, okay, look, I'm gonna buy this property. I even start that process, and then I put my other property on the market, you know, with the idea that I could probably, they might even end up exchanging simultaneously, right, or. So you began the process of buying the second property before selling the first one. I could if I wanted to, right? Because I've identified this property. Maybe I just put a contract on it, knowing that I could sell. I mean, this is, you know, this is from an investor standpoint, right? right? Knowing that I can sell my existing property. Correspondingly, right? If I've got a property that I'm making, you know, that I bought 10 years ago and I'm making 10% on it, 
you know, I need to be able to find a better property in this market. And that's why a lot of 1031 exchanges, at least right now, don't happen because it's very difficult to find a better replacement property. So, you know, I have a client who, you know, sold the property. He's got a million dollar capital gain. It's going to cost him $300,000 to, if he has to pay the taxes. Well, we ultimately came to, after looking at what was available in this market where he wanted to be, we ultimately came to the conclusion that he was better off paying the taxes than he was buying a property that he wasn't going to get a really good good rate of return on, you know, and was going to be a management problem for him because he didn't want to have, you know, big management problems. If you're paying too much in taxes and you want to recession-proof your investment portfolio while also avoiding those common pitfalls that many investors and syndicators fall into, you should attend Think Multifamily's annual Fire Summit Conference, November 11th and 12th. You can save $100 by using promo code Whitney100 when you go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash fire. Again, that's promo code Whitney100 to save $100. Our guests are Alex Shandrovsky and Michael Brady. Thank you both for being on the show today, guys. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. I know all the listeners, if you are in the syndication business, I know this is a topic and question that I get often and that I've had to deal personally in our own business as well, is how do we do a 1031 exchange into a syndication? You know, it seems so complex in the beginning and what that should look like. And I know you as the listener also have questions about how to do this properly. And these guys are experts. They are the experts on 1031 exchange. So, but a little about them before we get started, they both represent Madison 1031, a national qualified intermediary for tax deferred exchanges, internal revenue code 1031. Alex is a Silicon Valley seasoned entrepreneur starting with a $3,000 loan. He built a multi-million dollar catering business serving leading tech companies, including Google, Airbnb, and Facebook. As business director for Madison 1031, he provides clients with expert lawyer and CPA approved 1031 exchanges. Michael is executive vice president at Madison 1031 and is a certified exchange specialist and attorney. He has over 25 years of experience representing clients in commercial and residential real estate transactions, as well as a wide variety of business transactions and commercial litigation matters and has acted as general counsel to the title insurance company. So guys, thank you all again for your time today and, but get us started a little bit about maybe just briefly, I know, you know, two of you at one time, you know, we don't have tons of time to dive into backgrounds, but just briefly tell us a little bit about yourself so we can get into this subject that I know a lot of people are wondering about. Yes. So Mike and I kind of like the odd couple a little bit. So my background is a small business operator. So essentially I started a small business in Silicon Valley and one of the things I was always looking for is how to be able to scale my cash flow, right? And that I learned much more about real estate and real estate services, which brought me to Mass in 1031. But I look at it from that small business operator who's looking and be able to create the most effective investment possible. Mike, share a little bit about yourself. Yes, sure. So I'm an attorney, as you heard, uh, predominantly in business and real estate. Got involved in 1031 exchanges in 2005, specifically or exclusively as a qualified intermediary. And during that time, I've helped investors defer, I'd say, probably about a billion dollars in taxes and doing tax deferred exchanges. And 
structuring transactions, specifically with, with syndicators and some ideas we have for syndication. Awesome. Well, I mean, that's a big deal to defer. A, did you say a billion dollars? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a billion dollars in taxes. I mean, what a great vehicle or avenue here that we need to know about, right? I mean, you're in the real estate business. You need to know about a 1031 exchange and specifically in the syndication business. We need to know how to help that investor who has that property they're selling and they want to invest. Like, I want to be confident in this to be able to say, yes, you know, we can do this or no, we can't. Or if we do, then this is how we need to move forward. And so, you know, if you all could just, you know, elaborate or get us started in this process, I'd love to be able to speak to the, you know, the operator that's listening right now that's saying, you know, I don't know if I can take 1031 money into my syndication, you know, and so maybe, you know, you all could get us started in that and, and let's walk through that process. Mike, is it all right if I just start us off for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Alf. Let's just take a second first think about the motivation of the 1031, the individual who's actually doing the 1031 exchange. Right? What's the mindset of the 1031 investor? And then we'll bring it into the syndicator. So essentially, an example I love to use is uh, the IRS is kind of like the Uncle Sam. So he's always that strange uncle who invests with you at every single investment that you make. And when you're ready to actually sell your investment and there's been appreciation, he's coming to you and saying, look, you know, we did so well. It's time for you to give me a percentage of that appreciation, right? Now, but he says, wait a second, you've done so well in the market that I really want you to stay, keep your money in the market. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you this 1031 exchange vehicle, which is going to allow you to fully reinvest all the proceeds from the sale into another invest, into like kind exchange into another like-kind investment property. Now, there's a lot of stipulations and limitations around that, but the motivator behind an individual doing a 1031 exchange is, first of all, he's an individual who is looking to reinvest all the proceeds of his sale into the market. He's not looking to just cash out. Two is usually those individuals who are looking for a long-term play, right? Some of the individuals that we interact with are going to continue doing exchanges until the point of death, Right? where it's going to allow the step-up basis for their inheritors. So we're looking for somebody who's really long-term thinking, a seasoned investor, and really is ready to be able to play long-term in the market. And the government is working with, alongside of him to move the market forward. Now, Mike, could you share a little bit some of the challenges of a syndicator when he's looking at bringing a 1031 investor inside of his syndicate? Yeah, absolutely. So let me just kind of support what you just said. You know, these are essentially... 1031 exchange is a term-free, interest-free loan from various levels of government. And we're talking about the federal government as well as the various states and some cities that actually impose taxes on capital gains that allow you to go out and buy bigger and hopefully more profitable property. So with syndicates in particular, there's some challenges. So there, the way I look at this is two ways. So you have syndicators who are looking for 1031 investors. Okay, that's one set of challenges, bringing 1031 money into a syndication as well as the flip side of that, when the syndicated deal is ready to be turned over, it's going to be sold to a third party, how do we get our syndicated investors out and allow them to do 1031 exchanges? Okay, so there are two different challenges. It's kind of two sides of the same problem. And it all stems from the fact that essentially the taxpayer who sells the relinquished property, that's the property that they're going to defer the taxes on, has to be the same investor that buys the replacement property, which is the property they'll be investing their capital gain in. Then we're talking about taxpayers. And so what happens with syndicated deals is predominantly they are set up these days in limited liability companies. They could be limited partnerships as well that typically are going to be viewed as a partnership for tax purposes. 
Okay, and that means the partnership is actually going to be the entity or the taxpayer that owns the property. And we can certainly have a tax, you know, an LLC or a limited partnership sell a piece of property and go buy a piece of replacement property in that same structure, and that's fine. We can do that all day long. It's the same taxpayer on both sides of the coin. It becomes more problematic though where we have an individual who is selling a property and wants to invest in a syndicated deal that's owned by a partnership. And vice versa, if we have a syndicated deal in a partnership that is going to now sell and we have individuals who want to go off and buy in their separate, you know, in their own names or in, you know, different entities. So that's the problem. And that's really the crux of what the issue is. It's a very, very complicated issue. It's a tough one to get around. Essentially, what we have to do is we have to allow for the same investor on both sides of the exchange. So this can be done two ways. Typically, for the investment into a syndication with a 1031 investor, we would have the investor join in the property, not as a member of the ownership entity, the limited liability company or the partnership. We would bring them in as a tenant in common. So they would have a separate deeded interest in the project along with the syndicated entity. Okay. And there's some formalities we have to respect in that relationship. You know, this is not a great arrangement for a syndicator where you would have some preferred returns, some waterfalls and, you know, some bumps for the syndicator. But initially we want to bring them in as a tenant in common and you could have these co-owners. We should look at, I'm going to throw out some legal lingo here. So forgive me. Uh, we want to look at revenue procedure 2002-22, which gives us some guidance on how to be set up as a tenant in common versus a partnership. And, you know, they can operate that way for a period of time. And at some point down the road, and there's not necessarily a magic number, they can then have the tenant in common investor contribute their ownership to the syndicated entity and become part of the family, essentially. Okay, so that's one way for bringing in syndicated money. Likewise, on the exit from the syndicate, we also have to kind of bring ourselves out of the partnership model into individual ownership. So we would do something, typically it's called a drop and swap, where we would basically have the syndicate deed out individual interest in the property to the taxpayers, to the syndicated, you know, the investors, so that they can then go on their separate ways and go buy replacement property on their own. There are some timing consequences to that. There's, you know, we want to do this in advance. We don't want to do this at the last minute. It may make sense, you know, a couple of years before the target of selling the property to restructure the entity into tenant in common. You know, that's some things to look at. This is something that you really need to work with tax and legal advisors in advance and plan to make sure that you're going to be in compliance or have your transaction meet scrutiny if the IRS or the state governments were to audit. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 